Hi, everyone. I'm Nathan, the host of this podcast. And tonight, I'm honored to be joined by Professor Dan Williams. Professor Williams was a courtroom lawyer with a specialty in capital punishment. Receiving a Juris Doctorate from Harvard Law School and a bachelor's degree from UC Berkeley, he was the lead lawyer in the case that ended the death penalty in New York. He was also a law professor at Northeastern and Harvard University, and is currently a psychotherapist specializing in performance optimization. Hey, Professor Williams, how are you doing? I'm doing fine. Glad to be here. Well, it's an honor to have you on this podcast. So I want to start with the question that we ask every guest. So if you can have dinner for two with anyone in history, who would you choose and why? Well, I'm tempted to give a pretentious answer and tell you I'd love to have dinner with uh, a writer like Dostoevsky or Tolstoy or uh, a philosopher like Frederick Nietzsche or or, or somebody like that. But in all honesty, I would love to share a meal with Muhammad Ali. Not because... um, I love boxing. I, I don't. I don't really. I'm not really a boxing fan. Uh, I'm just an admirer of his uh, as an athlete, as a political figure. But I think the real reason why I would love to to sit across from him and have dinner is I just would like to ask him what it's like to get into a ring where there's nowhere to hide. You can't run and hide when you're in a boxing ring. And how do you deal with the fear that you, that you have to have some fear because you're, you're going up against, you know, uh, George Foreman or some slugger who at any moment can really damage you and, uh, and can pummel you. And there's nowhere to run, nowhere to hide. So, I would like him to talk to me about fear and how, how do you confront fear? And I think the reason why I'm interested in that is I've, I've spent a lot of years in the courtroom and in a lot of ways, being in a courtroom is like being in a boxing ring because when you're in a courtroom, there's nowhere to hide. And sometimes, I mean, not sometimes, often things are happening in the courtroom and you do want to run and hide. You want to, you want to crawl underneath your table. Uh, but you can't. You've got a client to defend. And uh, so I see a lot of parallels there. And I would just love to hear Muhammad Ali's thoughts on that. And the other thing, I, by the way, I would just love to hear Muhammad Ali um, speak to the issue of whether he has any regrets uh, over abandoning Malcolm X during you know, the later years of Malcolm X's life. Like just as a historical matter, when Malcolm X broke from the Nation of Islam, uh, Muhammad Ali, who was really good friends with Malcolm X, uh, um, stood by the Nation of Islam rather than his friend uh, Malcolm X. So, mm-hmm. I think that in a memoir, towards the What's late, that? I think that in a memoir towards the later years of his life, he did write that he was sorry. That yes, yeah, yes, he did. I, I would just like to kind of in an unguarded moment over dinner uh for him to just sort of become uh, vulnerable you know and speak to whatever pain that might have caused him you know 
Mm-hmm. Yeah. I would like to have him expand on that. Kind of the human side of that historical moment. I mean, it really says a lot that you even know about that, that fact of Ali's uh, experience. That's great. Well, speaking about fear, it definitely takes a lot of courage to stand up to injustices of a system. And one of those yes. is the death penalty. Yes. You were the lead lawyer in the 2004 trial that abolished capital punishment. And you wrote an internationally famous book regarding your involvement in this New York case. Um, could you please give us a quick synopsis of this process? So there's, so I had this 2004 case that challenged the, the uh, capital punishment in the state of New York. And I was the lead lawyer in the appeal up to the highest court in New York. Uh, and we prevailed there. The, New York, the highest court in New York struck down the death penalty. Uh, and so, yes, I, w- I spearheaded that case. The case I wrote a book about is a case uh, from Philadelphia involving a man named Mumia Abu-Jamal. And your, your listeners, your viewers can Google that and you'll, you'll see that it was an ex- extraordinary case, internationally famous case. And back in the day, back in the, you know, in the 90s, it was the case, the issue that animated so much student activism around racism on uh, college and university campuses. Um, so, yeah, I was the, the chief legal strategist in that case. Mumia was a, a former Black Panther, Black, uh, 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 Black activist. He was also a journalist. Um, in, in Philadelphia, a highly recognized journalist, uh, a phenomenal writer. He had a radio program, uh, a highly touted radio program in Philadelphia. Um, and uh, he uh, got caught up in a, in a situation uh, where his brother was locked into an encounter with a police officer and, and Mumia happened upon the scene and the, to make a long story short, the officer ended up dead on the sidewalk. And Mumio was prosecuted for the murder of this officer, convicted, and sentenced to death. So this all happened back in 1981, a long time ago. I, I was still in college at the time. I was, uh, what, a junior in, at UC Berkeley at the time of this trial. M- many years later, well, early 1990s. By then, I am now a lawyer. Uh, I've always been interested in capital punishment. And um, uh, I became the, the chief legal strategist of a legal team to try to get Mumia's conviction overturned, as well as his death sentence. And so to do that, you have to do a kind of autopsy on a case. When you're brought into a case at that stage, what you're doing is the, the case is over. There, there's been a conviction. Uh, the case has been reviewed on appeal, all of that. So it, it's, like a, it's like a corpse on an autopsy table. And you're trying to do this legal autopsy on the case to see if you can show that there's been a, an a egregious injustice that's been done. And we believe that we did show that. And, and we, there was a, a, a highly publicized hearing in 1995 uh, where we showed a lot of uh, errors in his trial from the jury selection phase 
where blacks were removed from the jury. So he ended up being prosecuted, uh, convicted, and sentenced to death by a predominantly black jury, uh, white jury. Uh, crucial evidence was suppressed. Uh, his lawyer was lackluster, to say the least. He did not receive a very good defense. So kind of all the hallmarks of what is problematic about the death penalty you can find in Mumia's case. Mm -hmm. um, and so there was an international outcry that arose from that. And uh, uh, I wrote a book about it. I wrote a book about the experience and his death, his conviction. We could not get his conviction overturned, but we were able to get his death sentence overturned. Mm -hmm. um, could you discuss more about how capital punishment works and perhaps whether or not race and class play a role in this process? Sure. Okay. Capital punishment law is extremely complicated. Okay. There are a lot of intricate rules. I mean, I, I taught a seminar uh, on capital, on just capital punishment at Harvard law school and it took, it covered the whole semester. So it's very complicated. But here's the bottom line. The bottom line is it's a, a death penalty case involves two phases, the guilt phase and then the sentencing phase. So the guilt phase is what we recognize. It's like any other conventional trial. We go through a trial process to see if the person is responsible for the crime. What makes the death penalty, a death penalty trial um, different is then you go into the second phase, the penalty phase, which is, is basically a second trial. But this time, the trial is all about whether the defendant should live or die. Now, think about that. In a courtroom with a jury, lawyers and a judge, and you have to decide whether a, a human being should live or die. That's an extraordinary thing to ask of the judicial process. So how does that, how do we decide that? Well, basically the rules are, first, you have to show that, that the killing is a death eligible offense. And what a death eligible offense means is that there are certain aggravating factors attached to the killing. So for example, just the killing itself is not, uh, doesn't make a case a death eligible offense. There has to be a killing connected to a felony. That would be one way. Or there could be a killing of certain classes of individuals, like police officers, or the killing of the president. Something like that could be an aggravator. So that's pretty easy. That, the prosecutor just has to show that there's some aggravating circumstance that makes the killing a death-eligible offense. Here's where the action is. The action is in the mitigation side. The defense has to present mitigating evidence. Evidence that would mitigate the crime. So what does that mean? Well, we can think about it this way. We can think about it as a competition between two different movies, two different narratives. The prosecutor's narrative is a very sh short movie. And the short movie is those few minutes when the crime occurred. And so the prosecutor wants the jury to say, you know, he did it. I saw them. You know, basically, there's the movie. He, he, committed the, he committed the killing, death penalty. The defense comes along and says, no, I want you to see a different kind of movie. I want you to see a much, 
a, a, a bigger movie, longer movie. Let's look at this defendant's life. Let's look at what his childhood was like. And even you could even go, let's look at what, what life was like for him in the womb of his mother. Now imagine if he was, if his mother was a crack addict and it caused cognitive uh, um, damage to the fetus. So you can go back even that far. What was his life like uh, growing up as a child? Was he abused as a child? Um, what was his life like as an adolescent? Did he have job opportunities? Uh, what kind of people did he, uh, what kind of crowd did he hang out with? What was his life like as a young adult leading up to the crime? Was he, was he involved in drugs? Was he impaired by drugs at the time of the crime? So you see what I'm trying to get at is a full story, a context of this person's life as a way of putting the crime itself in a bigger context. Mm -hmm. You know, if you think about it, when we watch movies, right, what, may, what, what, what makes a movie interesting is, is that it's not just some climactic episode. It's the whole surrounding context of that climactic episode that makes a movie interesting. And that very much is what a death penalty trial is like. So it's like a competition between the two, the two types of narratives. And you mentioned something about race and class, right? Didn't, didn't you ask? Me? I'll tell you where race and class becomes a big factor. It takes a lot of money, and it takes a huge commitment, and it takes a lot of skill to put together a case for life to put together that big narrative that I was talking about. Okay, that's not an easy thing to do. It takes a lot of time to dig up all those records, to find all these witnesses, to find past teachers of the, of the defendant, um, to get family members to testify. And for poor people, people of color who don't have a lot of means, do you think that they're getting a dream team defense? You think they're getting fancy lawyers with Rolex watches and little doodads on their shoes? You know, fancy suits? No. No, they're not. They're, get, they're getting bottom of the barrel attorneys, to be frank, to be, to be in most instances. Um, and often these death penalty cases, the, the sentencing phase only lasts, could last a half a day. Mm-hmm. Last half a day, whereas in a quality case, if a quality defense, it would take weeks to present the full case for the defense. So, yes, yeah, so that's the primary primary reason for the injustice of the death penalty is there's time, money, and commitment are in short supply for poor people and for African Americans. Mm -hmm. Wow, half a day to determine. Oh, that's very routine. Half a day, very routine. Mm -hmm. Well, yeah. I guess from what we've talked about, I see an irony in the whole system that although we're working to curb the physical violence, it just brings more into the light the structural violence that is always ah. in our lives. And speaking on the storytelling, and one could even say it might be a boxing match between the prosecution and the defense. I just want yeah. reminded me of a quote from Mark Twain. And 
which went, don't say the old lady screamed, bring her on and let her scream. Yeah. And this yeah. was the power of narratives and storytelling in yes. every setting. And that yes. with the courtroom. Yes. Yeah. Advocacy, advocacy is, is storytelling. Great advocacy is storytelling. Uh, great, great trial lawyers are great storytellers, for sure. That's a great Mark Twain quote. Well, speaking on sort of this structural violence and the United States, um, what does capital punishment in the U.S. suggest about American culture as a whole? Yeah, great, great question. Uh, it's, it's a really interesting question about what, what is the fact that we, we cling on to the death penalty long after other advanced Western societies have gotten rid of it. It's very curious. The Europeans don't understand it. They don't understand you know, why the United States just clings on to the death penalty. And I, yeah, I do think that it's connected to American culture, that there's something that it's, that capital punishment is deeply entwined with the fundamental mythology of the United States. And the mythology of the United States is rooted in um, this idea of the American dream. And the idea of the American dream is connected to what we saw in the 19th century, in the 1800s, in this westward expansion, where, where hard work, initiative, self-reliance are the predominant values in our culture. Uh, you're responsible for your own fate is, the, is, is a kind of key to our culture. And that if, if, and so the American, and that's really important for the American dream, because if you work hard, the American dream mythology has it, if you work hard uh, and you're self-reliant, then you deserve whatever rewards come to you as a result of that. And that's a very powerful thing in the United States, obviously. And it makes us, it's, it makes the United States what it is and the envy of the world in so many ways. But if you're responsible for your own fate in that way, then the flip side is if you screw up or God forbid you commit a horrific crime, well, then you're responsible for that too. So... It's this very individualistic thing uh, that, that, that's at work in the existence of capital punishment. Mm -hmm. To bring more um, literature into the conversation, I guess, um, author Scott Fitzgerald in um, his classic, The Great Gatsby, one of his criticisms was regarding the American dream. And yeah, the, the dark side of the American dream. Yeah, for sure. Yes. And speaking on this individualistic culture, I guess, you can also sort of see it in state policies with even though U.S. seems to be the biggest supporter for human rights, they haven't signed off. I've learned recently that they haven't signed off on some UDHR clauses or the Convention on the Rights of Child or even recognizing the ICC. Um, why do you think this may be? Is it also related to well, the spirit? Well, I think I think that part of uh, the story is uh American arrogance. So what part of this idea of, of this astonishing success, success of the American empire 
which is connected to to the kind of individualistic energy that we have in the, in America. When you really look at America, one of the one of the great things about this country, what why people want to come here and and what makes it so such an interesting place is the energy here, that entrepreneurial spirit, which is rooted in individualism. And what came out of that is a kind of power, international power that we have. And, and that created a kind of arrogance that the United States is the one that organizes the world order. We are the enforcer of the world order. That's the mythology stretching back to post-World War II America, which started in the late 40s and, and in the 1950s. This idea that we create the world order um, and we're the enforcer of international norms. We are, you see. And if anybody deviates from what we deem to be the appropriate world order, well, then they get punished. So, I mean, just let's just take a, a simple example. And I won't belabor the point, but one just simple example historically is Vietnam. Vietnam had the temerity to want to um, uh, um, figure out what kind of society it was to have. And the United States is not going to abide by that kind of self-determination. So you get, you get the travesty of what's called the Vietnam War. But anyway, how it goes back to international agreements is, if we're the enforcer of, of a world order, then we're not going to submit ourselves to some international tribunal to enforce a moral norm or any uh, an international norm like the eradication of the death penalty. We're not going to submit to that because by definition, we are the enforcers of that international order and those international norms. So it's a, it's a contradiction to us to submit to some international tribunal and have the death penalty abolished when we're the ones supposed to enforce what the international norms. So that's why we don't sign off on these international agreements. Uh, we make other countries sign off on it, and we want them to sign off on it because we want them to commit to the moral norms and the, and the world order that we want established. But that's historically post-World -war, War II U.S. history, uh, foreign policy history. But of course, what we're seeing now with the rise of China uh, and with uh, uh, what's happening in the United States currently, a real degrading of U.S. power. Uh, so the world is changing very fast. And the United States as the enforcer of the lone enforcer of the world order, which is what we thought would happen after the collapse of the Soviet Union, is, is of course, is just not going to happen. And, and we all recognize that. And interestingly, we're, we're seeing in tandem with that the withering away of, of capital punishment in the United States. I don't think that's a coincidence. Mm -hmm. um, I guess part of this podcast is about learning from history so we don't make the same mistakes. Hearing about them not signing off on a lot of these treaties makes, reminds me of the League of Nations. Yes. Failed due to no American involvement. And I wonder yeah. if it could possibly be a warning sign because it seems like Mark Twain's being quoted a lot, but he also said that history may not repeat itself, but 
it certainly rhymes. So it rhymes. Yes, yes, yes. The other thing is that you know, like uh, I, I know that I, in psychotherapy, what I often uh, tell my uh, clients when they come in for 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 psychotherapeutic help is that um, whether you whether you decide you want to change or not is really incidental because life will keep doing things to you until you learn its lessons. So on the individual level, you can keep, you can keep doing what you're doing. And what's going to happen is life is going to, is going to respond to what you're doing in ways where eventually you're going to wake up and, and learn the lessons that life is trying to teach you, you know? And I think that's true for nations. Nations will persist in their folly until they achieve wisdom. And I, and I think, I mean, hopefully, hopefully the United States uh, will, will, will learn from its own folly and achieve a kind of wisdom before it's too late. For example, on issues of the climate, just as an example. So it's interesting, you see how, how, the, how the, well, I guess what we're getting at this podcast, and I really appreciate you provoking these thoughts in me, is how something like the death penalty, which looks like some isolated topic, is actually very much connected to so many other themes of life in the United States and and uh, and and um, and world history. So, uh, my final question for you today on this podcast will be: You obviously support the abolishment of the death penalty, but. Do you think that there are examples where capital punishment is actually necessitated or justified? Yeah. The short answer is probably not. But because I don't think that, that human beings have the, have the prerogative or the wisdom, ultimately, to make a reliable decision as to whether another human being should live or die. Okay, but that said, life is very complicated. So I, I've all, I'm always suspicious of blanket answers and being sanctimonious about anything. So I'm not going to sit, sit here and be sanctimonious about uh, opposing the death penalty. I can, I can envision a rare instance where it would be appropriate for the death penalty. I will, one instance that comes to mind would be a case of treason where there's been significant loss of life, selling of state secrets, let's say, nuclear codes, where that where, and then there's a terrorist act, uh, and thousands or millions of people are are killed because of some act of treason. Yeah, I think I could I could be convinced that that the, the, those treasonous persons could be ought to be executed. The other would be the highly rare situation where. Uh, somebody is incarcerated, and they're so incorrigible, they're so um, out of control that they just pose a serious risk to other people in the facility that just can't be ameliorated. It's just impossible to, to uh, minimize the risk that this person poses for other people. So they're for the sake of life itself, uh, I, could, I could be persuaded that that person maybe should, um, 
be executed. But that's a, that would be a very rare instance. I guess these examples go with part of the reason why some people still support capital punishment, because one could view it as utilitarian, that yes. in, imposing such a harsh punishment would actually deter future crimes from occurring. Yeah, that's, ultimate, that's ultimately the justification for the death penalty. It's going to be a utilitarian argument. Yeah, ultimately. And so the, the, only way to, the only way to confront a utilitarian argument, well, there's two ways. One is confront it empirically. Are you right? Does it actually deter? Do, are we actually better off with the death penalty than without it? So you would have to confront it empirically. Or I'm, I much prefer to, to confront the empirical argument, the utilitarian argument, with a more moral argument that even if on balance there's a utilitarian justification for the death penalty, there's still an issue about morality and what are the limits of human, uh, of human behavior and human decision-making uh, here on earth. You know? So it's a kind of quasi-religious idea that, that we human beings, no matter no matter what the utilitarian calculus is, we're just not entitled to make these judgments against uh, about about whether somebody is worthy of living or or needs to die. That we're it's just not appropriate for human beings to pass that kind of judgment on other human beings, regardless of what the utilitarian calculus uh, has to say about it. Mm-hmm. I guess that's why it's Article Three so high up in the Universal Declaration of Human Rights because. We believe it's universalism or relativism. Right. That's what that that, exactly you hit it. You hit it on the head. That's that's what a right is. By definition, a right is something that uh, that you're a a, a kind of protection you're entitled to, no matter what the utilitarian calculus would suggest should happen. That's why we have rights. Rights are trump cards against the utilitarian calculation. Um, So thank you, Professor Williams, for the eye-opening talk on capital punishment today. Um, I'd first like to sort of recap the power of storytelling and narratives and how facts inform but stories convince with an example of this TV show that I remember very clearly because it truly demonstrated the power of storytelling to me. So Once a young attorney was panicking over a closing case and she observed that the jurors had begun disengaging for her argument. So she went into a story about how when she was young, she never liked animals and her family knew that. So when she was about four, she came home drenched in blood, carrying her neighbor's rabbit. And her mother assumed that she she had killed the rabbit, but she had actually found the rabbit abused and tried to save it. So story short, long story short, um, that convinced the jury and because it illustrated reasonable doubt and she ended up winning the case. And even uh-huh. though it's a fictional story, I found it to be very yeah. complex in terms of storytelling. Um, and I guess today's talk was a really strong demonstration of how individualism still plays a huge part in global politics and I guess a big current event where we can see this today is in COVID because though it is within everyone's right to perhaps 
refuse a vaccine, it does slow down the process of herd immunity, which once again goes back to utilitarianism and whether or not yes. the, these people's rights should trump that. And right. Yeah. Well, yeah. What we're seeing is the fight, the competition, the tension between the idea of solidarity, the idea that we're all in this together, that we are our, our brother's keeper on the one hand versus, and that means get the vaccine, right? In solidarity with everybody else. Let's all get the vaccine and combat this, this plague versus rhetoric uh, 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 and the narrative about individual rights. So we see that we see the same kind of tension that we see in the death penalty. We see also in our daily lives around the pandemic. Mm -hmm. And that brings me to my final take key takeaway, which it takes unity and courage to stand up to all kinds of violence. Maybe not so much unity when you're in a boxing ring like Mr. Yeah. Ali, but especially when we're combating structural violence that impacts our lives, whether we realize it or not, because whether it's civil rights or now with social justice and human rights, and whether you believe in relativism or universalism, it takes unity to make change. Not only those first individuals that spearhead this process, but the bonds, like maybe even temporarily between Ali and Malcolm X, but also within states internationally by ratifying agreements to make yeah. a real impact. So yeah, that's that's wonderful. Well, it's marvelous what you just said. Well, thank you for sharing that idea and really making that clear through today's podcast. Yeah, so, you're welcome. You're welcome. It's my pleasure. Well, once again, then thank you, Professor Williams, for hopping on this podcast today. Um, it was truly a pleasure. Okay. I hope you enjoyed this episode of History for Two. Please share this podcast with your friends and tune in for other episodes. You can also find full video episodes on the website www.history42.com.